What Tony thought might be the second-in-command took them in hand while the other three helped their sisters and their fallen soldiers. Tony reluctantly let her take off the armor. He didn't like it, but there was no way they'd be allowed to travel fully armed. Their packs were seized, too, but not before he palmed the small golden cutters that took off the mage locks, tucking the finger-length of metal inside a hole in his shirt hem. Doing what he had to do was one thing, but allowing himself to be backed into a corner with no escape was another entirely. True to his expectations, one of the locks was slipped around his wrist again, just as soon as the last piece of armor was off. Being the second time, it wasn't as bad, but he still hated the empty feeling. The man who did it gave an understanding shrug when he grimaced, but didn't say anything. Then he sat back against a wall with his hands bound in front of him and made to wait while Steve was taken care of. Steve's search was much, much more thorough than Tony's had been. Two of the shield maidens and a soldier volunteered to check their hidden weapons. The second ended up doing that, too, but not without having to fight for the privilege. She even checked in his cheek for contraband. Tony was almost insulted. "'All right, buddy. Upsy-daisy.' A couple of guards grabbed Tony's elbows and hauled him unresisting to his feet. Two more flanked Steve. Wanda watched from a spot in the shade. Even now she looked tired, curled up against the trunk of a tree as if she'd fall asleep any second. In spite of her exhaustion, her voice was strong when she said, "'William, Theodore, go with them. Make sure everyone gets out safe.' A sleepy, smug smile curved her lips. "'We wouldn't want anyone to miss their way.' The two boys scrambled to their feet. Soldiers blocked them from getting too close, but they dodged through as far as they were allowed. The shield maidens circle up, keeping close watch as Tony's guard shoved him forward. He hissed, but caught his feet and kept walking. Behind them came the soldiers, twenty-three still standing, with nearly the same amount injured or dead. The ones who could walk did so, and the ones who couldn't were carried by their fellows. The dead would stay, to be given rites by the temple. Children and temple dwellers peeked out from within and behind buildings, watching as the two of them were led past. Unlike Emma, they didn't follow the winding path, but cut directly across the lawn. Tony couldn't help wincing when he saw the damage they'd done to the grounds. Grass had been trampled, and the carefully manicured shrubs had been cracked and broken. Time would repair it all, but there was a strange, loathsome feeling in seeing physical evidence of the world intruding on what had been a peaceful place my mother's home. He'd never known she'd grown up in a temple, hadn't known she'd loved before his father, hadn't made the connection between her and the Maria of the Hills, other than some small amusement at the similarity of names. None of it had ever come up. He'd never asked, and she'd never offered. Now he wanted to find out what else he hadn't known. Outside the gates, people lined the streets in silent little groups. Old, young, men, women— the entire mixed group that Steve and he had seen coming in. This time, they weren't smiling. Their backs were ramrod straight, chins lifted. We'll defend our home, their posture said, loud as a dragon's roar. You will not cow us. You will not frighten us away. As if they understood, the soldiers and maidens started walking closer. The faint banter that had been audible dropped away to nothing. It left the long walk along the spiral dead, only an occasional groan from the wounded rising above the hush. Forever later, they finally reached the end of the street. Wagons were collected in crooked lines. 
their drivers sitting up in seats and almost universally not paying attention. By contrast, the horses were. When they saw the procession, some of them started pawing the ground, eager to be off. Older, wiser ones perked their ears, but ultimately stayed calm. Until the wind changed. Nearly as one, the collected animals went still. The one nearest Tony shook its head and tried to back away. Nostrils flared and ears back. Its handler tried to soothe it with pats, but it wasn't having anything of it. It flinched away, stumbling, yanking the wagon with it. As if that had been some equine signal, the rest of them started doing the same. Drivers suddenly found themselves overoccupied with an entire herd of terrified animals. Horses were terrified of dragons. Some of the uninjured soldiers rushed to help. Tony watched as Teddy and Billy did the same, breaking directly through the center of the mess and nearly crashing into Steve in the process. Hands slipped, flashing in and out of sight as Billy dropped something into Steve's pocket. As quickly as if it had never happened, they race onward to the nearest horse, a chestnut mare, that was making every attempt to free herself and run. It took nearly an hour for the last horse to be calmed down enough to handle. The sun had sunk on the horizon, close to setting, and the soldiers grumbled unhappily about having to travel all night. Tony and Steve were forced to wait while a chill wind blew in off the desert. Late fall as it was, Steve's nose still took on a deep pink cast by the time they were finally bundled into a locked wagon that was being pulled by a solid old gray. He danced in his traces and snorted, fully aware that a predator was being loaded up behind him, but didn't bolt. To Tony's annoyance, their hands weren't untied. He hadn't really expected them to be, but it would have been much easier if they had been. Once the door closed, they were left in nearly total darkness, with only a small latticed window allowing any light in at all. Someone had padded the bottom with blankets at least, so it wasn't too uncomfortable, and they'd be able to stay warm when night fell and the northern winds took their toll. Outside, voices were shouting orders about, "'Load the wagon! And make sure the horses have been fed!' To his untrained ear, it sounded like they were definitely planning on not stopping. That suited their plans nicely. It wasn't flying, and it certainly wasn't as good as having total freedom, but given their circumstances, Tony decided it wasn't a bad way to travel. "'I seem to end up tied up a lot of this trip,' Tony sighed, selecting a corner and settling in. "'I'm starting to think your gods have a fetish.' Or maybe you're just exceptionally handsome in ropes. No one can resist putting them on you. Steve smiled tiredly and selected the corner across from him. Just as he sat, the wagon lurched into motion. It knocked him off his feet and dropped him to the floor with a thump. Tony laughed. He had to. The whole situation was ridiculous. Graceful. Very graceful. Steve chuckled and rearranged himself in a more comfortable position. Let's see you do much better. Are you tempting me? when we're supposed to be playing good captives. When he stretched out his legs, Tony found that his toes just brushed Steve's hip, just because he could, and because he was about to be very, very bored for a very, very long time. Tony dragged his toe across it. He bumped against something hard that wasn't, unfortunately, Steve's cock. Is that what Teddy gave you? What? Oh. Wiggling, Steve worked his bound hands around so he could pull out the item from his pocket. It was a small clay pot, sealed with a piece of cork. A piece of parchment was wrapped around it, tied on with string. Steve peeked into the jar, blinked, and then pulled off the note. Sitting up, Tony tried to read the note from across the wagon, but the angle and poor light did him in. 
"'What's it say?' he demanded impatiently. "'What is it?' "'I—' Sunlight caught Steve's hair as he tilted his head, making a single spot of bright gold in the gloom. "'It's from Wanda. It says she's sorry she had to let us go, and she hopes this helps. I think it's in Dragon.' "'Azilasan,' Tony corrected automatically. "'Azilasan, writing.' Steve nodded, and the bit of gold vanished with the movement, leaving their confinement just a little dimmer for its loss. It's like hearing the words. I never learned it, but I understand. Dragon Soul. The whole concept made Tony grimace. He didn't like the idea that souls could end up mixed around like that. Souls were supposed to match their species. What did it say when a soul didn't match the body? Steve might be more rightly a dragon than he was. Mongrel. Can't change. Can't fight. Think you're so special because the king's your father. You're just a human like your mother. Tony? Giving himself a whole-body shake, Tony put the memory behind him. It was just a kit's insecurities, like the fear of heights and how positive he'd been for years that the dark meant he'd vanished and might not come back. What's in it, then? Some sort of weapon? A potion? Steve peered in the jar again, tentatively dipping in his finger. It came out glistening wet, darker than when it went in. He rubbed his fingers together, smearing the stuff. I think it's paint. Paint? Why would she give us paint? How does that help? A bump in the road traveled up Tony's hips and spine to crack his head against the wall. Wincing, he slumped down some to be more stable. Is this her idea of a joke? Some weird underwater humor? I don't think so. It's a big risk to take for a joke. Steve grabbed the corner of one of the blankets and wiped off his finger. Let's start with what's going to happen to us. We're captured. We'll be taken to the Maria and beat a hill for judgment. Tony nodded. That sounded like what he'd expected. Where we'll escape and find some way to get back to Azzy Terriot. Eventually, the tips of Steve's fingers ran along the ropes that held his wrists, checking their tension. They were strong and tied well enough to not come off easily. Tony could probably have helped him slip them, but they'd never be able to put them back on properly, if someone peeked in. We'll have to go to the palace. I doubt they'll give us a chance to escape before we see the Maria. We'll probably be stripped and hauled before her almost immediately. Stripped? Tony's attention locked on that word. What do you mean, stripped? Steve blinked at him in confusion. They're not going to take a chance on us going in there armed. All prisoners are taken naked to the Maria. Hissing under his breath, Tony cursed in two languages. Of course. Wanda would have seen this coming. It was practically her job description. Luckily, they had a way out. That's it, then. They'll see my chest. Red paint isn't going to help hide anything. No, but I can make it work. Hold on. Squirming, Tony twisted to reach into his pocket and pull out the purloined cutters. They were tiny things, barely larger than what he used to make jewelry in his off time. It had probably been the only reason he'd been able to hide them. He tossed them to Steve, who of course caught them easily. Cut the mage lock. I need my magic. And give me the paint, too. Obediently, Steve leaned forward and snipped the little strip of silver. It curled up and fell to the floor, just another piece of metal. Once again, he felt the world breathing around him, a flood of feeling that made his head and heart ache. The pot of paint he pressed between Tony's palms, making sure he had a good grip before letting go. Just remember to put it back on. Yeah, sure, of course. Not without some modifications. There was no reason to put it back on spelled, after all. The paint was typical, ordinary paint maybe a little thicker than some, and though it dried slow, it didn't come off easily once it had. Even dampening it with spit didn't make it free itself, which made it perfect. 
Dipping a finger inside, Tony concentrated. Changing things into other things was hard. Mostly things were comfortable in their current shapes and didn't want to lose that. Plus, there were so many variables that even if someone did manage to turn a cup into a mouse, there was no guarantee that it would be a living mouse or that it would ever go back to being a cup. On the other hand, changing the quality of something was easy. Color was the easiest. It was only light, which was practically magic anyway. Focusing hard, Tony twisted his magic through the paint, nudging the little bits of red to become something else, something more illusory. Nudging the color a little sideways and touching it with enough magic to fool the eye wasn't hard, and it felt good after having been cut off. Once he was pretty sure he had it, Tony took his fingers out and wiped it across one of the bruises on his shin. The place where the paint touched faded entirely, as if it were only perfectly healthy skin. That's amazing! Tony startled backwards against the wall. Somehow Steve had stuck up on him without making a sound. Restraints be damned. He'd gotten close enough that their heads had nearly touched. Make some noise next time, will you? Steve grinned. I did, but it blended in with the wagon. Oh. That made sense. It still ruffled Tony's scales that he'd gotten this close, but the wagon would be a good enough excuse. And it wasn't like Steve was one of those assassin girls. Or if he was, he was in the best disguise magic had ever created. Recovering his scant dignity, Tony shoved the paint back at Steve. Since you're here, hold this. As soon as his hands were relatively free, he started squirming again. The robes they'd been given were loosely tied at best. He still had to work hard to get the shoulders to slip down and expose his chest. In the dark, the crest glow was even more obvious than usual. Fine blue lines drawing a dragon with wings of flame across his chest and the front of his shoulders. The circles and rays of the sun crossing over its head with a crown of fire. It glowed in Steve's eyes and lit up his face, making it ridiculously easy to tell he was trying not to stare. Tony licked his lips and smirked. It wasn't like they'd have anything else to do for the rest of the trip. Okay, give it here. I'll hold it. I need you to paint it over my chest. A simple stretch of his legs let him hook them around Steve's hips. Blankets bunched under him awkwardly as he dragged himself closer. Thigh muscles ached, once again reminding Tony that they weren't at all used to this sort of activity. Tony ignored it and settled in with his elbows braced and back arched. Just slather it on, but try not to overuse it. We don't have that much. The blue glow made Steve's flesh look nearly purple. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I can do that. Once again, the paint changed hands. It was awkward, but Steve managed to angle his wrist to dip the tips of his fingers in it. Against Steve's skin, the paint turned peachy pale, glistening faintly. Gently, they traced over Tony's chest in short, sweeping motions. It was chill, just a little. Tony's skin prickled as Steve's fingertips glided over his skin. Each motion was precise and delicate as a real painting, and even though it wasn't exactly a difficult task, Tony could feel the weight of Steve's focus on him. It was like suddenly being the center of an entire world. Cool paint slid down along his pectoral muscles, working in little circular dabs on thicker lines. Bit by bit, the crest vanished, lines of glowing blue being taken over by the appearance of normal skin. By the time Steve finished, Tony's chest was completely plain. It looked horrible to his biased eye. Ever since he'd been a kit, he'd had his crest. Not seeing it was just strange. There... Steve's voice was thick as he settled back on his heels and stopped the paint. We have half of it left, if you need any touch-ups. His trousers were tented by his erection, though there wasn't enough light to tell if he were still blushing. Tony eyed Steve's crotch thoughtfully, 
and then took a hard look at how his hands were tied. It wouldn't be the most graceful thing ever, but needs must. Without ceremony, he reached forward and shoved his hand down Steve's pants. Steve leaned back, but didn't move out of reach. What are you doing? Thanking you. The cloth was only loosely tied, the same as their robes. Tony took advantage of that to shove them down, freeing Steve's cock. Wrapping both hands around it, he gave a soft tug. Again, Steve leaned away. I don't think this is the time for that, he growled, trying to bat Tony's hands away. Just his voice, low and rough, thick with the rousal, was enough to make Tony's temperature spike. Can't think of a better one. Since Steve kept moving away, Tony put his hands down and shoved forward, knocking him the rest of the way to his back. Seldom used reflexes let him land on Steve's knees before he could move to escape. Come on, Steve, what are they going to do, look in and catch us? The sun had set far enough that Steve's face was nearly entirely in shadow, their little latticed window not enough to let what was left of it through. But Tony saw him nod, felt the way his body relaxed back into the wagon floor. Taking it as a cue, Tony slid his palms up Steve's cock again, feeling how it laid in his hands. There wasn't room for much movement in general, so he put his thumbs to good use and made sure to drag them along the vein and across the slit at the tip. Steve's breathing jumped, as did his hips, but he didn't make a single noise. Faintly annoyed at Steve's reserve, Tony tried it again, this time stretching his fingers down to cradle Steve's balls. That got him another hitch of breath, but not a whimper, not a sigh. Clearly this called for desperate measures. Holding himself up carefully, Tony leaned down and dragged his tongue across the head of Steve's cock. That got him the response he wanted. A sharp oath and the crack of Steve's head as it knocked backwards. He did it again, slipping his tongue just under the foreskin, and then down, wrapping his lips around it. Tony, you— Holy Rose! Steve's bound wrists laid over Tony's head, pressing the rope against the back of his neck. When Steve flexed his arms, it nearly forced Tony's head down, and Tony didn't bother resisting. He followed the pressure until the head pressed against the back of his throat. It made him gag a little, but he liked the way Steve felt in his tongue. Steve's breaths were loud and panting over the creak and moan of wood, little bitten-back moans escaping him now and then. Paying attention was a struggle. Every sound went from Tony's ears straight to his cock. He tried to listen, to focus on whatever made Steve react the most, but it was the hardest thing he'd done since he'd built the first version of the armor. His jaw started to ache, and his lips felt hot. He could taste Steve on the back of his tongue, faintly salty and bitter. He caught himself yanking at his wrists, trying to free them up, and then growling when the ropes didn't come loose. The growl ended up being the breaking point. Steve's hips rose up and his arms pulled. Tony braced himself with his tied hands to keep from falling forward as Steve rocked into his mouth once, twice, and then spilled across the back of his tongue. Then he fell backwards, limbs loose. Tony gagged again, but this time from the flavor, and swallowed rather than spit it over their blankets. Lifting himself up, he made a face and tried to scrub his tongue on the edge of his sleeve. That was disgusting. From his puddle of relaxation, Steve laughed tiredly. You know how to charm a man. Since Steve couldn't see a smile, Tony bent down again to press a kiss to the soft muscle edge of his hip bone. I try. Steve's fingers carted through his hair, tangling at the base where drying water was making it form curls. Give me a minute, he murmured, and I'll show you a trick or two. None of the planning or tactical discussions Steve intended had gotten done before dawn. It was a minor annoyance. 
but he consoled himself that he'd had almost five days of hard travel to make up for it. Wounded soldiers had been left at the first temple of the crown they'd come across, letting the healer priests nurse them as best they could. Otherwise the caravan trundled on without pause, clearly indicating that they wouldn't be stopping until Vita Hill. Sex hadn't exactly been how he'd intended to pass the first night of travel, but it happened anyway. Tony was impossible to refuse. When he didn't get his way the first time, he got sneaky, and if that didn't work, he just started pleasuring himself, which Steve quickly discovered there was no defense against. The first round hadn't been bad at all, though Tony hadn't figured out how to use any suction. Steve had been more than happy to demonstrate. The second had been considerably better, as he and Tony got used to having their wrists tied. The third was slower, and the fourth was just outright too much. They ended up sleeping through the rest of the day after that, stretched out on the floor of the wagon side by side. People checked on them, made sure they got food, and to stretch their legs when the horses were changed out, but otherwise no one bothered with them at all. Steve welcomed the distraction. It was better than thinking about everything he'd turned his back on when he'd agreed to fight his own people. There was no other word for what he'd done but traitor. He'd fought besides an enemy prince against the soldiers of the Maria. That they'd been coming to arrest him didn't make it better, wouldn't bring back the men and women who'd gotten in his way. At the point Tony had made about the green dragon, Naya had struck home. At that time she'd been likely trying to stop Tony from saving his father, and Steve couldn't find it in him to regret saving their lives, but other dragons Steve fought had people as much as his own were, not monsters as he'd convinced himself for so long. Just soldiers, like the men and women that made up his legion. He had built an entire career out of self-righteous self-delusion, fighting a war for a ruler who had murdered during truce, and for a supposed kidnapping that was looking like a bald-faced lie at best. The idea made him sick. Tony's fist smacked into his ribs, snapping Steve out of his thoughts. I can't sleep when you're thinking that loudly. Stop it. Sorry. Steve took a deep, slow breath, and then counted to ten as he let it out. Daylight streamed in through their window, cutting deep amber lines across the wall. I was just... Tony wouldn't want to hear about his thoughts. He'd rightfully be disdainful, and Steve didn't have it in him to accept the scorn he was due, so he fumbled for something, anything else to say. Things are getting complicated, aren't they? Against his neck, Tony groaned and deliberately wiggled closer, tangling their legs together at the knee. I don't know if you've noticed this, but they've been complicated since the king was poisoned. They haven't changed at all, except your view of it. I know. And he had. He just hadn't wanted to think about it. Easier to focus on the adventures and on Tony than on the bigger picture. He'd worked his hand up to wrap around Tony's. We'll stop this. He felt Tony's grin against his neck, mostly by the way his beard moved. I know. Now can I sleep, or are you going to brood some more? Sleep. I'll brood at you later. Steve laughed and squeezed Tony's hands. They were rougher than he remembered, sharply calloused when he ran his fingers along the knuckles. Fine bumps seemed to coat his skin like sandstone. Frowning, Steve looked down between them and blinked. Scales? Tony's hands were covered with tiny blue-black scales, spreading out from his fingers and up his wrist. As they got farther from his hands, the scales faded away, turning the same golden tan as his skin before vanishing. His fingernails had lengthened, turning sharp and pointed, but still essentially nails rather than claws. Then Tony yanked his hand away and sat up, and the effect faded. What? he demanded, looking down at himself. Nothing here. 
Don't tell me you fell into a dream that fast. No, I... Steve snatched up Tony's hand again and held them up to one of the beams of light. Nothing happened, not even a small change. I wasn't dreaming. Your hand had scales. I don't change. The statement was flat, sharply defensive. You know that I don't. And even if I could, if it were developing, why would I start now? I don't know. Why did dragons start at all? What were you thinking about? Steve just kept a firm grip on Tony, not letting him tug free, even though Tony gave a spirited attempt. Just humor me. The hard look Tony gave him was at least partly mixed with humor. That was fine by Steve, just as long as Tony wasn't actually angry with him. Since you're dying to know, I was thinking about how hard we'll have to fight to get to our things. Even if it's not working right now, I'm not leaving my armor behind, and if they are paying attention, they'll know it's spelled, which means it'll be guarded until they have a mage deal with it. As Tony talked, the skin near Steve's fingers darkened and started to grow hard. Scales glinted iridescent blue in the sunlight, creeping up and around Tony's hands. Hold that thought and look down. Brows furrowed. Tony looked down and took a sharp breath. He stretched his hand out, twisting them in Steve's grip, to watch as the scales spread. But it doesn't work like that, he breathed. It just... it doesn't. Maybe it does for you. Steve let go, and the scales started fading again. Slower this time, since Tony was focusing on them. When he took hold again, they returned. They like me. Do you think it's because... Tony looked away and pulled on his hand, sliding back to the far wall and drawing his knees up. This time, Steve let him go. It has to be, doesn't it? You heard the priestess. It makes sense. If I'm not enough dragon on my own, then between us might be just enough. Reassurances caught on Steve's lips, unspoken. The evidence didn't fit them, and Tony wouldn't appreciate a lie, even a comforting one. Dragon sold. He didn't feel like a dragon, but what did dragons feel like? Being different explained how he'd gone from sickly and tiny to stronger, faster, better in just the space of a year. He'd never heard of it before, and almost wished he hadn't. It felt like cheating, that he'd been handed something that had shaped his whole life for the better, while other people had to do it through hard work. Stretching out a foot, Steve nudged Tony's knee. Remember what the priestess said? Blue eyes peered at him across the way warily. Tony's whole expression was guarded, his shoulders hunched and his head low. Which time? She said a lot of things. It took a little effort to find the exact memory. The language of dragons felt strange in his throat and on his tongue, new sounds and syllables tangling up together. There is more to who and what you are than the form you take. That. And she was right. It doesn't matter if you need me to change, or... Or if you never can at all. You'll always be a dragon. Tony stared for a second, then dropped his head and laughed. You sound like Jarvis. Like my mother. She sounds like a wise woman. A hint of a smile peeked out at him from behind Tony's knees. She is. It was only a little change, but Steve felt it when the wagons moved from rough roads to the rough cobbles of the city. They'd made good time by not stopping for more than the absolute necessary breaks and to change horses. He'd estimated five, but they'd managed to make it in just under four days. Steve left Tony sleeping and stood with his back hunched under the low ceiling to peer out the window. Familiar stone buildings passed them by at a gentle clip. The light was angled to indicate late afternoon the deep gold cut by more shadows than just the weather would suggest. 
Somewhere, a street musician was playing a jaunty tune that Steve vaguely recognized. Something ribald about a young shepherd and the trouble he fell into with a gaggle of milkmaids. Baking bread and smoke scented the air, not quite covering the sharp scent of the nearby ocean. People filled the streets, wearing proper tunics and togas, their hair trimmed short or pinned and curled in fashions that almost resembled the ones he remembered before leaving for the border last summer. They pointed and stared, no doubt curious about the procession of wagon and soldiers. After the winter treaty was signed, they were a rare sight on the streets. Seeing people in places that were familiar, even if he didn't recognize the people specifically, was a comfort. Steve had always been a city boy. He'd adapted to being deployed to the border, where there'd been the one village and the camp, but he hadn't liked it. Leave a hero, come home in chains. There seemed to be some sort of joke in that somewhere. Bucky would have liked it, if he hadn't been up in the mountains, busy being the exact reason Steve was tied up in the back of a wagon. Are we there? Tony asked behind him groggily. Reluctantly, Steve turned away from the view. He smiled at what he saw. Tony's hair was sticking up on one side, and his cheek had an odd, reddened crease where he'd been laying on it. Yeah, we're there. We're on the main thoroughfare now, so we'll be arriving soon. Tony blinked sleepy, half-focused eyes at him, and struggled to sit up the rest of the way. He slipped the first time, then found a bit of bunched-up blanket to brace himself against and pushed. Oh, good. I was starting to wonder if your city moved around. You're just used to flying, Steve reminded him, dropping back down into the blankets with a heavy thud. It's a little different when you have to use a horse in roads. Not my fault humans never thought to grow wings. They spent the rest of the short ride stretching and waking up, getting ready for whatever was ahead of them. Steve thought they would probably be kept together, but just in case, they agreed on where to meet if they were separated. Tony's despelled mage locks would keep him from having any further bindings placed on him, leaving his magic free to work, and Steve knew for a fact that he was strong enough to break through the doors on the dungeon cells. One of his first winter jobs, after he'd grown into himself, had been helping to renovate them, and there had been enough accidental breakage that he'd been assigned to carry supplies instead. As far as plans went, it was shoddier than Steve liked, but it was the best they could do. When the wagon finally stopped and the doors opened, the first of seven ringed it, clearly to prevent any escape attempts. They were in a courtyard edged with statues and low walls that were near covered with carefully tended vines. Torches lit it with flickering orange lights as the sun finished setting behind the grand expanse of the marble palace. Steve smiled tiredly and inched his way out. Being confined for four days had left his legs strangely numb. The bones had forgotten how to do their job. Behind him, Tony's foot nudged his back. Steve stepped forward to let him out and immediately had a shield maiden on either arm, holding him in place. Tony was similarly confined, and they were marched between a line of guards up the steps. As a legate, Steve had been in the temple palace before. It hadn't changed much, but it never did. In the front hall, white and black marbles sterilely vied with the riot of color and textures that were the seven altars to the gods. Each altar had a lovingly painted statue behind it, of the gods in their glory, faces only barely roughed in. None of the statues were named. Steve had always been told that it was disrespectful to call on the gods by their names. Now he wondered if they've just been forgotten. They were made to bow to each altar and a statue, even Tony, who did so with an expression of bemused tolerance. And then they were stripped. Unlike the fuss of before, it was simple and quick. One of the guards took out a razor and cut the robes off their backs with a few quick strokes. 
They'd gotten rid of the paint in the cutters somewhere on the third day of travel, so there was nothing lost there. Their pants they were allowed to take off without the use of a blade, though the guards and maidens watched closely for any trickery. Back in the pool, Steve had been embarrassed by the way Wanda and Tony had looked at him as he'd stripped down. There were more than a few of the same expressions in the faces of the guards, but Steve kept his back straight and his chin up. He wasn't going to let some gawkers see him blush. The paint on Tony's chest, by a miracle, held up to inspection. If Steve squinted, he could just barely make out the curved edge of the symbol underneath, but it could have been a trick of the light. No one said anything or even hesitated when Tony's robe was cut off. The only thing they paid any attention to at all was the brand of silver around his wrists, and apparently that passed inspection. Once they were stripped of anything that might possibly have a hidden weapon, they were marched off to the left, past the altars and into a small hallway. Its walls were thick with murals depicting the scales and their wielder, her face hidden by conveniently placed shadows as she dispensed justice with both hands. Only in a few places did the painters acknowledge her other aspects. In the hint of an axe handle at her hip, or the darkness behind the one she turned her face from. The goddess of justice had always been one of his favorites. Steve felt strangely light as he walked her hallway. She and the protector would know the truth of things, no matter his own confusion on it or what the Maria might say. Eventually, the corridor led out into a larger room, almost entirely empty of furniture or decoration. A small statue of the scales was tucked away in the corner, but otherwise there was no sign that this was a holy place to her as an altar. Black marble tiled the floor in shining stretches, set off by the marble columns that braced the roof. At the head of the room sat a woman in a draping black gown, pinned at the shoulder with a plain silver brooch. Her hair was pinned and curled, neatly tucked under a woven circlet of blown glass leaves. A mirror sat in her lap, the face of it dark as if ruined by smoke. What drew Steve's attention was the man at her feet, wearing a pair of loose, sheer black pants, and absolutely nothing else. He was obviously former military, with visible scars across his chest and shoulders, a jewel-encrusted patch covering his left eye that matched his nipple piercings. The right eye was ringed with heavy coal, and his lips slightly robed and shined. Time had turned his temples gray, but he was still in fighting trim. The Maria's fingers curled through his hair, casually as if he were a house pet. Steve knew of him, though he'd never seen him before personally. General Fury was a legend, the one to lead the charge against the dragons. Almost as soon as she'd taken power, their Maria had retired him, ostensibly to be her advisor, but everyone knew what that meant, and now Steve had the proof of his own eyes. The Maria didn't look up as they were marched before her, and pushed to their knees. One long graceful finger of her free hand traced nonsense onto the face of the mirror, which she studied as if it were a scroll. "'This is Legati Stephen and his companion the dragon?' "'Yes, Maria,' one of their captors said. Steve thought her name might have been Jessica, but he couldn't be sure. "'We encountered them at the Obsidian Temple, as you suspected.' "'Thank you.' A brush of the Maria's palm and the dark mirror turned back to silver. She looked up, taking them in with the same sort of regal, in-control air that Steve recognized from the best of generals. "'What do you have to—' "'You!' The leader of the shield maiden startled. "'Us?' she asked hesitantly. The guards near her made uneasy noises, looking around uncertainly for the source of the Maria's ire. The Maria actually stood up from her throne, as if she would launch herself across the room at them. 
At her feet, the former general casually leaned to the side, giving her room. Magefire glittered at her fingertips, white with an aura of black and gold. I know you. I know you, Prince. Did you think a bit of paint could fool me? Jessica! Jennifer! Restrain him! The two of the maidens, a tall brunette and the one that had acted as a leader, sprang forward, grabbing Tony's bound arms and locking around them, holding him pinned. So you know who I am? Tony looked up. His lips were curled back into a smile that only just avoided being a snarl. Whatever you think you're getting out of this, you're mistaken. You and your people will be ripped apart. The Maria stepped forward to look him in the eye and snorted. You think I'm afraid of dragons? Petty monsters who attack in the night, who never venture far enough from their mountain to win the victory they could have. The reason we don't take the lowlands is because we don't want them, Tony snapped arms and shoulders flexing to mantle wings he doesn't have. His captors flex their own muscles, holding him in place. There's nothing to stop us from leveling your city and flying home. Nothing. No, there isn't, is there? The Maria shook her head. You have so little idea what the world is about, don't you? Safe, tucked away on your mountain, with your traitor mother. Your line seems to inspire people to throw away their honor. Wrenching himself to the side, Steve found enough room to glare up at the Maria. I followed Tony because I have honor, honor enough to not be willing to let my home throw away its own. Her eyes were hot as she stared down at him, dark with rage. You abandoned your post and men, she said slowly, each syllable precisely enunciated. Fire crackled in her words, as if she would turn dragon and incinerate them. You went herring off into the mountains after you had been told explicitly by one of my representatives to let the matter go. You killed men of your own army, and stood by an enemy to do it. How is that honorable?" Steve had prepared for this, known it was coming, but hearing the accusation hit him like a blow. Two people had gone missing, and I was officially informed that your representative did not know where they were. As a legate, it was my duty to find them. And that he's one of them was a benefit? Hmm? Black and gold lace fingers flicked at him the scattered force of the bolt like a lick of fire. Steve's head spun as if he'd been slapped, and it reddened from the tiny blow of heat. I expected more of you. You had a great future, and to throw it away for... this. He didn't even give her the respect to meet her eyes. Better Tony than a ruler who would murder another for petty revenge. You think I? The color under her olive skin drained out as she stared at him. Something connected in her eyes a snap decision like he'd seen in soldiers on the battlefield. Guards go. Only the seven remain. To Steve's shock, no one argued about leaving the Maria alone with a supposed traitor and a dragon. A few of the shield maidens made protesting faces. Everyone else turned and marched out. Even her concubine stretched, stood, and sauntered off with the sultry swing of his hips. The doors closed heavily behind them. The Maria kept looking at them, sharp and focused as a razor blade. Steve started counting the silences by the breath. His elbows and knees were starting to ache from being ground against hard marble, but he kept himself from squirming. He didn't doubt that the maidens holding him would have been happy to grind him in some more. After nearly two hundred breaths, the Maria finally shook her head and turned back to her throne, curling up on it. Once again the mirror sat in her lap, and she stroked it like a beloved pet. Her eyes stayed on Tony, who watched her with as much focus as she had them. "'Why don't you fly away, Prince?' she asked. "'You know we can't hold a dragon with any of our jails or chains. 
You could be gone in minutes. I can't. Tony's head didn't bow, but the hard line of his shoulders softened. Steve closed his eyes, trying not to hear the faint broken edge in Tony's voice. I'm too human for that. She nodded, as if she just confirmed something for her. I see. And why do you think that I am a murderer? You sent assassins to my home, Tony answered levelly. This time, when he flexed his arms, the shield maidens looked at the Maria for confirmation. When she nodded, they let Tony stand, swaying, his knees red and faintly bruised from the floor. Steve knows one of them, and confirmed his specialty. We would talk to the priestess of mirrors. We know it takes the venom of a hydra to poison a dragon. This is the only source. I see. Finally she looked away. Good reason. Wrong, but understandable. I will have to think on this. While you're thinking, my father is dying! Tony started to take a step forward, but the shield maidens grabbed his arms to hold him in place. If you didn't do this, you'll let me go, so I can find the real assassin. No, rushing will do no one favors. The Maria picked up her mirror, turning it over in her hands. I will think. In the meantime, take them to the cells. They are to be held until I give orders otherwise. She ordered shortly, and the woman leapt to obey. We will speak again, Prince Anthony, the Maria promised, as they were summarily escorted out. Do not doubt it.